Congress shall make no law. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is Bullet Points on Vinyl Draft Radio. And now, your host, Tony Ashcraft. Welcome to Bullet Points on Vinyl Draft Radio, Second Amendment Talk, and more coming to you on a Tuesday afternoon. Happy Second Amendment Tuesday to you, by the way. Hey guys, if you're watching us on uh, Facebook Live, if you're streaming us, we appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we got a lot to talk about today. So uh, we're going to do this first segment on Facebook Live as usual. Then we're going to move over to VinylDraftRadio.com. It is VinylDraftRadio.com. And if you're mobile, catch us on the TuneIn app. Download it for iOS or Android. It's free. Install it. Mark Vinyl Draft as your favorite. And it's just a thumb tap away. All the great original programming here as well as some great music. And uh, you can catch bullet points every every Tuesday here at 3 o'clock. So we're going to talk about a little bit about um, uh, AR-15s, to buy or to build. What what should you do and, uh, and how to do it and uh, what you need to look out for and some things that you need to consider if you're getting into the AR-15 market. Um, I wanted to... Um, to go back, <clears throat> excuse me. I wanted to go back to uh, to last week's show for just a second. Um, uh, you know, usually here I do the firing line, but uh, so I think this is going to take the sort of take the place as our firing line segment. But um, we had the folks from um, from Triple T Holsters, uh, uh, Jim Thompson and uh, Robert Thompson, um, and um, they were here, and I had them in here. I thought it was a great company, and uh, went and looked at their products and uh, and kind of how they do what they do and, and what they do. And uh, I, I liked what they had to offer, so I invited them in here, and um, we, uh, they, they shared their, um, their story with us. <clears throat> and um, uh, I, so after the show, I went over there, and uh, uh, they made me a holster. I, I got a holster from them, and uh, I liked it so much, I got another holster from them. So I've been wearing it for a week. So um, I wanted to let you guys know that... Um, you know, a lot of the folks, a lot of the products or people that we have on here that talk about their products or services are people that we've talked to directly. And, and Triple T Holsters is one of those companies. Um, I've been wearing their holster now for uh, for a good solid week. And I carry a Sig P220. And that's a that's a big 45. That's a full size 45. Um, the folks at Triple T uh, mentioned to me that uh, their their leather was orthotic leather so that it didn't uh didn't absorb moisture and uh i've been outside you know working outside getting in and out of the truck in the parking lot uh doing all kinds of different stuff and this holster i have to say uh has performed as advertised so a big thumbs up uh to the guys at uh triple t holsters and uh you guys if you get a chance you can go to to vinyldraftradio.com and the archives of of bullet points and all the other shows are available there for you to listen to i encourage you to go back and listen to um to last week's show with triple t holsters and uh so you can hear their story and see what they had to offer and and really get uh um, get a, a perspective from the uh, uh, from the owners of the company. Uh, they've been around for about eight years, and uh, just a, I can't say enough good things about the product. Just a fantastic product. Um, in fact, if you uh, if you contact Triple T Holsters, give them a call. Now, this is not uh, an online offer, but is if you go in the store there or you give them a call and mention Bullet Points, you'll get ten percent off uh, of your holster purchase. So that's a very generous offer from those guys. 
Um, but I, I can't say enough good things about their product. It, it wears well. It fits well. It just a just a fantastic holster. And I've uh, I've had the opportunity to sell a lot of different holsters, wear, carry, and try out a lot of different holsters. And uh, uh, being in the firearms industry for a number of years, and I got to say, this one is uh, this one is at the top of my list. So um, so you guys check those guys out and uh, and get to it. Uh, the other thing I talked about the um, uh, the Canic pistol, the TP9 SFX, and this all started back a few episodes ago, um, where a, a listener asked me, you know, Canic versus Glock, what what's what's better. Um, and so, you know, it got me thinking, uh, I really needed to test out the Canic. So I did that. Um, I put about, uh, 600 rounds through a Canic. It already had about 200 rounds through it. And since then I've put 200 more rounds through it. And so far it's performed great. And I said as much on last week's show, but, um, this, uh, you know, got me thinking a little bit more, um, about maybe doing, because, you know, and, and after last week's show, um, I got some uh, I got some feedback and some questions, uh, some phone calls, some emails, and um, about the Canic, and they were you could cut them up into two different categories. One category was, yeah, I have a Canic and I've had it for a while and I love it, no issues. The other category was, I'm thinking about getting a Canic, but uh, reliability, I don't know. So I thought, well, okay, you know, I, I put. 800 rounds now collectively through this Canic plus the other couple of hundred that it had on it before I got it. And so far, new issue, or no issues. But, you know, a thousand rounds, I think, is a, um, is a, good, a good start, but certainly not the absolute measure of reliability. So the only way that we can really do that is we have to look, I think, at the, um, at the life of the Canic TP9 in its current form and uh, how it is performed across the board, and only time is really gonna really gonna give us that um, that bit of data. But uh, in in my own interest and in the interest of our our listeners um, and and folks are gonna want to know, uh, I think I'm gonna do a long term test on this gun. So my goal uh, for this Canic TP9 SFX is I'm gonna keep putting rounds through it and. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait till I get to about the six thousand round mark or so before I report back in on what I found, and it's not gonna be a very scientific test. I mean, I'm gonna shoot it just like you guys would shoot it. I'm gonna take it out. I'm gonna carry it around. I'm gonna. It's gonna be in the truck. It's gonna be on my hip. It's gonna be, you know, in the nightstand. It's gonna be in the safe. I'm gonna shuttle it around and I'm gonna take it to the range and and I'm gonna work it hard. I'm not gonna baby it, um, and I don't plan on doing. A whole bunch of cleaning to it and I say that because um, uh, if we're being honest I mean some of us are pretty religious about cleaning our firearms after we after we go shoot it but just as many of us are uh, are not we let those things go and um, so I want to see how well it performs in a you know kind of an average sort of a a, a blue-collar test so I'm gonna beat it up you know and like I said I'm not gonna not gonna baby it I'm not gonna not going to clean it a whole bunch. I'm not going to not going to take it apart. Uh, I'll keep the barrel clean because we don't want any any barrel uh, any issues with buildup in the barrel. But um, I'm going to look at accuracy um, at uh, each when I get to each thousand round mark. You know, at a thousand rounds, two thousand rounds, three thousand rounds. I'm just going to make some notes and uh, 
and see how that goes and see where that uh, that sort of leads us. I think uh, I think six thousand rounds is a pretty a pretty healthy number. Um, and if we don't uh, we don't see any issues um, by then, uh, my confidence level is already pretty high in this gun. Um, uh, again, I'd shot you know before I shot the SFX, um, I had the opportunity to get behind a few other canics in the uh, in the past, and they all did really really well. I was very impressed. Um, so the SFX is going to be my uh, my new buddy for the next handful of months, and uh, so I'm going to get it and get after it. But uh, uh, and I'll uh, I'll post my findings or I'll, I'm I'm sure it'll come up here on the show. But if there's any other guns that you guys would like to see uh, long term tests, because I think it's easy. Um, you know, there's a lot of YouTube videos out there and whatnot where guys take you know take a gun out and throw it in the dirt or put 500 rounds through it or 100 or in some cases a thousand, and then that's it. Um, but usually that all takes place in a day or so, and that's not really a in my opinion, that's not really a real-world, long-term test for a firearm. Um, I think that, um, you know, in a, in a very controlled environment like that, you leave a lot of variables out. Because, um, again, you know, we, we, we carry guns, we use guns. They're, they're utilities for us. They're tools for us. And uh, sometimes it's just, a, um, you know, something that we use for sporting purposes just to go out and, and shoot, relieve a little stress or... Uh, uh, you know, or do some target shooting or, you know, whatever, just keep in defensive practice. But, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys carry that and that's what they'll carry. Um, you know, Glock's very popular too. And I thought about, I thought about, uh, running a Glock 19, uh, in tandem with this SFX just to sort of see how, they get down the same path together. The kind of problem that I have is the Glock 19 that I have available um, already has about 2,000 rounds on it. So, um, so it may not be may not be fair because uh, that's a that's a significant number of rounds um, to do for a test. But uh, uh, I'm going to try to figure out something to make this as uh, as close to an apples to apples comparison as we can get because the um, uh, the Glock 19 you know, in the Canic are sort of um, competitors, or not competitors, but they're, you know, in the in the polymer frame striker-fired pistol market, um, which is very saturated. Um, these two kind of kind of come to the front of the line. Um, the Canic, especially at its price point and the performance that it's yielded um, thus far, it's kind of hard to make an argument. So, again, the last lingering um, piece to the puzzle is uh, is dependability and reliability because Glock thus far has a stellar stellar reputation for uh, for reliability and functionality. Law enforcement used it for a number of years. There's a ton of people carrying it. Um, matter of fact, I'm carrying one as we speak. So um, uh, I can't can't I'm not trying to beat up on the Glocks at all. Um, they're they're a good solid gun, and that's sort of the uh, uh, that's become the benchmark at which you know the other. Striker-fired weapons are uh, are compared because Glock just this just amazing reliability. Uh, lots of police officers using it, so uh, um, you know they count on it. We can we can certainly count on it uh, in our day-to-day stuff. So uh, I want you guys to to stay tuned for that. And again, if you've got any suggestions about um, guns that you want to see long-term testing. And some components of the testing that you want to see, I'd like to hear from you. You can uh, you can suggest it on our Facebook page, um, uh, Bullet Points on Vinyl Draft Radio, or you can look it up at Bullet Points Radio. 
uh, send me a message there or post on there, and I'll uh, I'll take all your comments and your your questions, and uh, we'll see if we can incorporate some of your input because I'd like to know what you guys what you guys think about that, and if you have experience with the Canic. Uh, or any particular issues that you've had with the Canic, especially, um, I would be curious to see that because, uh, you know, again, the Canic is not brand new, brand new to me, but I certainly don't have the experience with it as I have with some other weapons. So I want to look at if you guys have experienced specific problems. I want to be on the hunt for that to uh, to see where we get. Um, so on the other side of the break, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, concealed carry. You know, we were talking about. Uh, uh, Triple T holsters earlier, and they brought up a good point that uh, got me thinking a little bit. So, uh, so we're going to talk about uh, uh, concealed carry and a, a an easy way that you guys might not know of to get your CHL license. So, stick with us. Bullet points on Vinyl Draft Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Bullet Points Second Amendment Talk and more here on Vinyl Draft Radio. I'm Tony Ashcraft. Ahead of the break, we were talking about uh, a little bit about Triple T holsters and. Uh, their their visit with us uh, last week, and you know that got me to thinking. Uh, while they were in here, uh, Robert Thompson said to me that um, in his experience, you know that a lot of people that have their CHL don't carry any longer because the holster is uncomfortable. And uh, uh, Tegan, our producer here, uh, him and I had the same conversation um, ahead of the uh, ahead of the show, and I think that's very true. So. Um, in in thinking about uh, sort of why people don't have their you know don't carry their CHL, or you talk to a lot of people and they say that oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna get my CHL I just haven't done it yet and so I wonder why not you know why not go out and get it and the answer is always I don't have time to sit through class all day well guess what there is an easy solution for that for lazy folks like myself that uh, that don't want to sit through a class all day. And you guys may have heard this, um, may be aware of it, but if you're not, listen up, because this is for you. The state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, actually offers a non-resident concealed carry license that's good in 29 states, including the great state of Texas. So how this works is, is really, really easy. So there's no reason not to do this. Uh, there's a bunch of online sites. I don't have one in particular that I would recommend. Prices vary, and I've reached out to a couple of these guys to try to get them to uh, to come on the show and sort of talk about this a little bit more. But um, so essentially, the way this program works is: whereas in the state of Texas, you have to you've got a, a little bit of sit down class time, you've got some range time that you have to do, and um, you know you qualify and you send in your paperwork and you pay this the fee to the the state of Texas and. Uh, you know, fingerprints, photos, um, the usual stuff that you go through. Uh, this program is a little bit different. So the qualification for your license is you're going to watch a video. And it's not always the same video. It's just a instructional safety video that has to be given by a certified uh, NFA instructor. So this is what the state of Virginia requires. These videos vary, again, depending on the website that you go to, who's offering it vary from about 20 or 25 minutes. I think I saw one. The longest one I saw was about 45 minutes. So you're going to watch this video, and they're very, very basic videos. They don't really address um, uh, the gun laws, per se, uh, in the state, uh, because, again, this is for non-residents, so it would be difficult for them to do the specific gun laws 
in the other 29 states in which, uh, um, you know, states like Virginia and Texas have reciprocity when it comes to concealed carry. But um, it's but rather it's a basic sort of a basic safety course. It tells you about, um, you know, how to load and unload a gun, the difference between a revolver and a semi-automatic, um, safe storage of a weapon, uh, cleaning, maintenance, proper range etiquette. Um, you know, don't point a gun, don't point a load a gun at anybody or an unloaded gun, keeping guns away from kids, proper gun storage. So all these kind of, you know, again, just basic, simple, straightforward things that most gun owners, if we're being honest, that most gun owners probably already know. Uh, but for the sake of those that don't, there it is. Um, so after you, uh, after you watch that video, you're going to take a, a test. And the test, again, it varies website to website, but it's typically um, between uh, about 10 questions and about 20 questions, and then multiple choice questions. And the questions on the tests are directly related to the video that you just watched ahead of taking the test. So um, it'd be difficult not to pass. Um, and it, the, the cool thing about this is um, that you can take this, these courses 24 hours a day. So instead of, uh, instead of screwing around at work watching Netflix, you could be getting your CHL. Um, and again, you know, you're talking a grand total of maybe an hour from the time that you start this process to the time that you end this process. Uh, once you pass the test, you pay the money, the fee, and to the uh, uh, to the website, and you get your uh, you get your certificate. Now these fees again varies from website to website. I saw them as low as about forty bucks, and I saw them as much as about seventy five dollars. There were some that offered uh, a discount on two people at one time, where it's you know seventy five dollars for one or a hundred dollars for two people. So um, if you if you and your spouse are are after it, that'd be a a good time to a good time to get it. But um, you, uh, and then after you get your, uh, after you get your, your certificate and you've paid, you've got to contact the uh, State Department of, uh, of Police there uh, in Virginia, Virginia State Police, and they will send you an information packet. That information packet contains a, uh, a checklist that tells you all the things that you need to include when returning the application. Uh, the application, I think, is about two pages long. It's not not particularly detailed. It's name, address. It's a copy of your driver's license. It's a phone number. Um, it's your you know your date of birth, your ethnicity, the things that you would typically fill out on uh, on state paperwork like this. Um, you have to have a copy of it um, uh, notarized as well. Uh, and then you pack up your your fingerprint card once you get your fingerprints done. Your two by two passport photos once you get those done and i believe the virginia state fee there is about 40 bucks so it's about the same as it is here in texas in texas they they lowered it from i think it used to be 125 dollars. they dropped it to they dropped it to 40 dollars. so um it, it's about you know the cost is going to be relatively the same um most chl classes here in texas uh they range from 100 to you know, one hundred twenty-five dollars. Uh, but again, I've seen uh, I've seen ranges. Uh, you know, gun ranges, shooting ranges, run specials for as low as uh, as forty or fifty dollars. But so it becomes, you know, getting one through the state of Texas versus getting one through the uh, through the Commonwealth of Virginia. 
not so much a dollar for dollar battle, but uh, more of a convenience thing. And uh, so, if you guys are you guys are wanting to do that, or you can't can't get your wife or your girlfriend uh, out of the house to to take the class because it does take up time. I mean, you got to get up. It starts early in the morning usually, and you know you get the range time. You got to buy ammo. You got to go down there. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you if your if your wife or your girlfriend has zero experience with a firearm, that she can take this and and carry safely because that's not true. Um, you guys got to be diligent about what you do. I wouldn't suggest that anybody um, just take the safety course and go and get the license because you know that's not what we want. We want responsible, uh, responsible gun owners, responsible um, uh, license carry folks, whether you get it from Texas or whether you get it from. Virginia or or wherever else, because, uh, you know, Second Amendment folks and uh, gun enthusiasts get beat up enough already about uh, liking and owning guns. We certainly don't want somebody to uh, uh, to behave ignorantly or uh, outside of the law, get themselves in trouble. And that's just one more thing for uh, for anti-gun folks to point at um, while they're telling us what bad people we are, but yeah, it's definitely convenient, and I think that um, I think that we all. I mean, I would like to see everybody who's uh, who's legally able to have a concealed carry license have a concealed carry license. I think it's important, um, and I know it's not for everybody, but but those of you that are thinking about it, I mean, stop thinking about it and do it. Get it done. Um, you know, there the there. There's always the argument from the left that. Uh, that concealed carry doesn't doesn't prevent crimes, um, and I did a little bit of searching uh, on this, as a matter of fact. And the unfortunate thing is, there's no department. You know, we can look at Department of Justice um, statistics for you know for murders by handgun or by knife, or you know it, it, we can see you know is it male on female, male on male. We can see the ethnicity of the person that committed the crime, but to see what stops a crime. We can't. There's just simply no data out there, and I don't even know how you would track it. But um, in the month of November 2017, uh, there were 22 instances nationwide that were documented um, on uh, as news coverage. That was the that was really the only benchmark I could find. Did a did a media outlet cover it? Because typically they won't. If a if a concealed handgun. Uh, you, a carrier or a licensed concealed handgun carrier stops a crime. That's usually not reported. It's usually the opposite of that. It's when it goes bad because you know the pro gun thing doesn't fit their narrative. But 22 instances, um, and they were all across the U.S. There was some in San Antonio. Uh, there was one in Chicago. Even there was a couple in Arizona. And there was one here in Houston where a uh, convenience store owner had been robbed previously, and uh, he thought to himself, "Now you know what? This ain't going to happen again." So he went out and got himself a CHL, and he had it on him. He had his weapon on him at the store, and two gentlemen came in to to rob him or attempt to rob him. Uh, one of them had a gun. One did not. And the store owner, fortunately, ended their weekend a little early. So good for him. And uh, you like to see things like that. The other thing I don't think is quantifiable is um, – you know, in Texas, we have open carry. That's not true in every uh, in every state. <clears throat> but um, when the CHL thing first passed in Texas, there was a uh, part of the part of the law was you, you you your handgun your weapon 
had to be absolutely concealed. You couldn't see a silhouette of it, no, no indication that you had a weapon on at all. So now that there's open carry, that's not the case. So it is for some people, it's a little bit easier to tell um, if they're carrying or not. So there's no way to tell that, you know, if you're, if you're a bad guy and uh, you're, you're thinking about some criminal activity and you're thinking about robbing somebody, you're looking at the softest, weakest target. You're looking at the person that's fumbling around with their keys, talking on their cell phone, got a bunch of stuff in their hands, screwing around trying to get their crap in the car. That's going to be who you're looking for. If you see somebody that you even think has a little bit of a the silhouette of a weapon on their hip, you, that's probably not the guy or the girl that you're going to go after. And if there's one of those individuals in proximity to a target that you consider as a criminal a weak target, you're probably going to leave that person alone too. So things like that, there's no way to quantify. Uh, you, can't, you can't put a number on there. There's no way to figure that out. But, you know, from a common sense standpoint, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. So you guys get out, get your CHL, um, just uh, Google non-resident concealed handgun license Virginia, and it will pop up with a lot of choices. Okay, we're going to talk AR-15s, build or buy on the other side of the break. Stay with us, Bullet Points, here on Vinyl Draft Radio. Welcome back to Bullet Points, Second Amendment talk and more here on Vinyl Draft Radio. I'm your host, Tony Ashcraft, um, thanks for staying with us, you guys. So listen, AR-15s, let's talk about it. You know, you guys that uh, have visited me visited me at the store or talked to me on the phone or maybe we've exchanged emails or social media or whatnot, um, you guys know what a passion I have for the, for the AR-15. Um, I think it's a, uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a simple design. It's a very uh, elegant design, and it is, uh, it's really unique in the firearms industry. It was when it came out. Now there's sort of, you know, there's kind of some copies here or there. But, you know, in talking to people about AR-15s, I, I enjoy building them. I, I'm a builder. That's what I like to do. That's what I really, really, really enjoy doing. That's a, that's a big passion for me. Um, but you know, that conversation always comes up: Do I build one or do I buy one? What's better? Well, um, let's talk about that. I don't know, you know, I can't really say what's better for you, the individual, but uh, I, can, I can tell you what my experience is and the conversations that I have with people. So let's start out with, uh, let's start out with buying. Um, if you buy one, you're, you know, the pros of buying one is you got a huge selection. You can walk in. If you can pass a background check, you're going you're gonna to walk in and walk out. You don't have to wait. Uh, you don't have to order parts. You don't have to, you know, mess with building it, you know, the, the time that it takes and whatnot. You can literally get in and get out in in an hour. You know, go in, pick what you want, do your 4473, and get out the door and get after it. So the kind of downside to that is, um, uh, is you have to buy a gun that a manufacturer has mass-produced and that's not a bad thing. doesn't doesn't necessarily take away from quality in any way, because uh, there's some really well-made factory guns out there. Um, but you have to buy something that is is mass-produced. So what manufacturers do is they're not building a gun for one person. They're building a gun that they think is going to appeal to most of the people most of the time. So they're trying to you know they take a, a broad brush approach at it and try to appeal you know, across the way to as many, many potential customers as they can. So you kind of, 
you're, you're pigeonholed a little bit into to someone's interpretation of what they think is is a good weapon. And, you know, everybody sort of has their niche that they do. Some companies sell solely based on value. Uh, some sell a little bit on brand reputation. And some, if you look at their advertising, want you to think that they're in the hands of every military member and every police officer uh, in every state in the union. And, uh, it, you know, that, that's not true, but it makes for a, makes for a nice ad. Um, some of these companies, um, you know, they are particularly expensive. Uh, there's some of them on the higher end of the scale. So you have to ask yourself, when you're, if you're a buyer instead of a builder, if you're, if you're leaning towards the buying route, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of cookie-cutter ARs out there for a, a manufacturer's suggested retail of, you know, seven, $750, between seven and $800, which usually puts the, uh, the street price or the, the retail street, the sale price, um, usually between, you know, six and 675-ish. Uh, but there's a lot to be had out there. Uh, and there's some cheaper brands that that get that get lower than that. There's some really, really inexpensive AR-15s out there. Um, you know, Deltone is one of them. Um, they their guns are cheap. Their guns are really cheap. Uh, Palmetto State Armory. They're they're a they're a website manufacturer vendor, but they uh, uh, they make their own guns. They make their own lowers, and they make their own complete weapons. And they're 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 fairly affordable, but when you compare some of these um, you know these sub seven hundred dollar AR-15s to something like uh, you know like a Daniel Defense, like a Noveski, like an LWRC, you know Leitner Wise Rifle Company, you know some of these guys that are that are thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars, seventeen hundred dollars, they get way way up there. You have to really ask yourself why you know what am I getting for this extra money. Because uh, you know, we take Daniel Defense or, or Lightner Wise, for example. They're you know LWRC. Um, you're talking about on some of their guns, literally a thousand dollars more than uh, you know something in the from like a DPMS type uh, you know platform. So what are you getting for that extra thousand bucks? Is it worth it? And guys, I want you to know that I'm not trying to steer you to a brand or away from a brand. What I'm telling you is when you're out looking for this, um, you're spending your money and you, you, you want value because remember, price is what you pay and value is what you get. So it's not what you paid for it. It's what it's worth. It's how much use you're getting out of it. And I think that's really important. So, you know, some of these, uh, some of these higher end guns, they get, uh, they get pretty expensive. And, you know, you're going to get things like, um, you know, a match barrel. Some of them have two stage triggers or they'll call it a match trigger. But a lot of it, a lot of it is really, is really hype. Um, not all of it. I mean, there's machining, there's a machining process that, uh, that's done. A fit and finish is better on a lot of these higher end guns. Um, but you have to decide for yourself also is, uh, what are you going to do with that gun? You know, if it's your first AR, if you're getting a little knock around gun that you're not going to do a whole lot with, it's just going to be the occasional shooter. I mean, a $1,500 gun is probably not for you. Um, and I'm of the mind that, like I said, I'm a, I'm a builder. Um, I'm, I'm always, uh, uh, I'm always going to lean towards build. I think if you've got a $1,500 budget, versus going and getting an LWRC or Noveski or Daniel Defense or, or, you know, somebody in the in the really expensive range, I think you're better off 
um, building your own gun. So, you know, and if you want to do that, then the question comes, well, you know, I don't really know anything about ARs, about the, I guess, for lack of a better word, the logistics of building an AR-15. So if you're going to build, the things you got to keep in mind are, well, the first thing you got to decide is you're going to build it yourself or, or are you going to to go to a shop and have, you know, uh, have them build it for you. If you're going to build it for yourself, um, AR-15s are not that difficult. They're relatively simplistic to put together. Um, however, to do it and do it right, there are a few tools that you need. Um, you know, there's a, a vice block, there's a receiver block that you got to get, um, a few punches, a few brass hammers, some just some here and there things. But, you know, there are some tools that are specific to, to the AR that you're going to need. So you got to be prepared for the expense of that. And those tools, uh, you're probably at minimum looking at 75 to 100 bucks or so um, for just the, the little here and there pieces that you need. Uh, so then you got to decide on what parts you're going to get. And this is where people get really really, I think, conflicted because um, a lot of times these choices are made, um, you know, based on a buddy's recommendation. And, and the buddy usually uh, wants you to get what he gets because he got it and he likes it. So you should have it too, which is a terrible reason, by the way. So don't do that. I mean, get what's good for you. Uh, what I tell people when you're trying to decide on AR, whether you're building it or buying it, is build it based on the role. And I've said this, I always use the uh, the automobile metaphor that if you've got a fifth wheel travel trailer and you think, I want to go camping, I need something to pull that, it's unlikely that you're going to show up at the Honda dealership looking for something on their lot because it just doesn't just doesn't fit. It's not going to work. Um, you're going to have to go get a uh, something bigger, something more capable that fits the role. So decide if you're going to hunt with it, if you're going to target practice with it, if you're going to shoot prone with it, if you're going to shoot from a rested position with it, uh, if the wife is going to shoot it, if it's going to be something you're sort of going to use as a training tool for your children to sort of teach them rifle fundamentals and how to sight in a rifle, you know, range safety, reloading, sight picture, you know, all the things that go along with gun ownership. If you're going to use it as a training tool, then that's something different as well. Are you going to throw it in the truck? Is it going to run around the deer lease with you? Are you going to use it as a varmint gun? All these things are, are different jobs that the gun will do. So the build criteria is going to be slightly different, although uh, you know a lot, of those, uh, a lot of those tasks can be overlapped with, uh, with one gun or another. They're not, they're not that categorized, but still, um, the, uh, the bonus of building it yourself is you get to build exactly what you want. It is a purpose-built weapon for whatever your purpose is. You also get to decide um, that, you know, if you decide later on, well, hey, I'm going to get this gun. It's my first AR. I'm going to get used to it. I'm going to get some trigger time. Uh, you know, my kids and I are going to shoot it. And later on, I want to shoot a little bit longer. I want an intermediate range weapon. I want to go from, you know, 350 to 500 yards with it. So let's add a scope to it. Let's add, let's put a bipod on it. Let's put a longer barrel on it. All those things are things that you can consider when you're building your rifle so that you don't get yourself into a hole. Uh, as an example, I had a customer that transferred a, a weapon that he bought. Uh, it was like Gun Broker, Guns America, uh, one of those places. But it came in and he got it. 
He liked it. And it was a 16-inch carbine, you know, kind of an N4-style weapon with an A2 front post sight. Um, and then he came in later, and he said, hey, I want to put a scope on this, but this triangle thingy is on the way, in the way uh, on the front. And I said, yeah, you're going to have to remove that. You're going to have to put a different gas block on there. Might as well change out the gas tube since we're in there. Uh, you're going to have to take that two-piece rail off there, and that delta ring system is going to have to come off, and we're going to have to put a free float rail on there. So all said and done, he was, before he could put the scope on there, uh, he was in it for about $250, $275, you know, 150 bucks or so for a rail, an hour, hour and a half labor, a couple of bucks for a gas block here and there. And he's chewing up some dollars very quickly. And he said, you know what? If I would have thought about this before, I could have just put that $250 on top of what I spent on this rifle and got something better and nicer that I wouldn't have to do anything to. And that is exactly my point. You got to look at the future path of your weapon if you plan on upgrading it. And most folks don't get an AR and leave it alone. You know, it's like guys in cars. You're going to get a car, but you're never going to leave it alone. You're going to do something to it. You're going to upgrade it. So you really have to you really have to plan for the future um, when you're doing this, so you don't get your you don't get your money squandered. Um, so the biggest uh, one of the biggest hurdles in in starting a uh, a build is is what lower receiver to get and uh, that is that is another one of those things that people have a real hard time deciding because there's a lot of a lot of choices out there so a lot of folks just buy on brand but we're going to talk on the other side of the break about different receivers and uh, and and how they're different and where your money comes in so stay with us we're going to take a commercial break and we'll be right back bullet points on vinyl draft radio Hey, welcome back to Bullet Points on Vinyl Draft Radio. I'm Tony Ashcraft. We're talking AR-15s, build it or buy it. So uh, when I left off, I, we're talking about um, you know things that you should look for uh, in a in a built or a bought AR, and things that you should uh, you should consider when you're building. So one of the big things is um, you know where everybody starts is with the lower receiver. So the debate is always, man, what lower receiver to get? Uh, is this one better than that one? Or, you know, some people will say, I oh, you know, like Arrow better than Spikes, or you know, they have Bushmaster. I mean, there's there's so many brands out there, it's ridiculous. Uh, truth be told, there's only a handful of major manufacturers that make the majority of lowers out there. There's uh, CMT, which is Continental Machine and Tool. There's LMT, Lewis Machine and Tool. Uh, Aero Precision does some manufacturing for people. Uh, Anderson does some manufacturing for people. Mega does manufacturing for people. Uh, so a lot of the lower receivers that you see were indeed made in the same factory on the same machines by the same folks. Uh, so, you know, something to think about. And then when you go to gun shows, you see a ton of different lowers, some of which you've never heard of before. And there are a lot of companies that... Um, you know, as retail folks, you would never hear about uh, because they don't do direct retail business. Um, one that comes to mind is um, there's a company called New Frontier Armory. Now they do, they will sell direct to the public, but but New Frontier NFA, uh, they do a lot. They make a lot of receivers for a lot of folks, a whole lot of receivers for a whole lot of folks. And this kind of these, um, uh, I don't want to say second tier brands because that that implies they're not as good quality as the as as the arrows and the spikes the the things that we're all used to but uh, uh, but they they do make a, a ton of receivers and that's done via you know the, a manufacturer if I wanted you know uh, Tony's gun company on my lower receiver 
uh, as a manufacturer and get a variance from the ATF. I tell the ATF, hey, we're going to make some lower receivers. They're going to start at serial 001. They're going to go to 200. This is going to be the model. This is going to be the caliber. Um, I have to have my uh, company name, city and state, engraved on the side of it, which the manufacturer does, and any logo I want to put on it, um, I can do that. ATF gives me that variance report. It's in the variance report off to the um, – when the variance comes back from the ATF, rather, the manufacturer cranks those out with those serial numbers in that variance, sends them to me, and boom, there's your lower receiver. So that's how it works. When you see some of these gun show lowers, uh, places like that uh, are where a lot of that stuff comes from. And there's some great uh, there's some great manufacturers out there that, that you've probably never heard of. Tactical Machinist in Florida – is uh, is one that comes to mind. They do very, very, very good work. But there's no way to tell if they actually made your lower or not. So, um, uh, you know, uh, the other thing is uh, is is billet receivers uh, versus forage receivers. So the general consensus is uh, a billet receiver is a a better, more durable, higher quality receiver uh, versus a forage receiver. So let's talk about the differences. A forged receiver. Uh, starts out with a forge, a forging. It's an aluminum forging, and if you can picture what an AR-15 lower looks like, the shape of a stripped lower, that is how that forging comes in, basically in that that basic shape. But there's no magwell in it. There's no holes in it, but it's just that forging. So what the manufacturer does after that, they take that um, they take that forging and they do the machine work on it. It's on a CNC machine. They they you know, they, they cut the mag well in it. They put the holes where they go. They do all the engraving to it. They do all the things to, to make it look like, to make it where it's a, it's a legit lower receiver. So it's, it starts out as 7075 70, aluminum. And uh, so after they do their machine work on it, then bam, there's your, there's your forged lower receiver. So um, that's it in a real, real basic, uh, basic kind of description. But that versus a billet receiver... So the difference between a forging a forge receiver and a billet receiver, the billet receiver comes into the manufacturer as just a big square, just a big cube of aluminum. It's the same 7075 aluminum as the forge receiver. So it's the exact same material. It's just not in the shape of a receiver yet. So what this allows the manufacturer to do is since they don't have this sort of pre-printed or kind of head start lower receiver forging, they have this big block. They can use a CNC machine, and they can get pretty creative. They can do flared mag wells. They can do rounded edges. They can do uh, they can uh, put uh, provisions in there for for ambidextrous uh, bolt catch releases. Um, they can integrate the uh, the trigger guard in there. They can. They can do. They can do all kinds of stuff. They can, you know, take out uh, take out a little extra weight here or there. Um, they can. There's just a ton of things they can do. They have a lot of freedom to do whatever they would like. So that generally results in a a more refined receiver. So um, that lends itself to quality, and you get a little bit of innovation that you won't find in a forge receiver. Because again, a forge receiver is sort of already not blueprinted but it's it's kind of on the way there's there's only uh, so many things that they can do uh to a forging with a cnc machine um, versus a blank canvas that is a uh, a piece of billet aluminum or a billet of aluminum i should say 
but again, they're both they're both seventy seventy five. So if we take uh, you know these companies will go out and, and source raw the raw aluminum material either via a forging or a billet. So let's make the assumption that the the forging and the billet come from the same aluminum manufacturer and that's that aluminum is of reasonable quality and one of those is destined to be a forged receiver one of them is destined to be a billet receiver there's absolutely no strength difference in the two of those uh, at all now some have made the argument that because the the forged piece is forged that that makes it a little bit stronger and that would take somebody a lot smarter than me to uh, to confirm or deny that. But there's an argument to be made there. But that being said, um, I, I don't recall a a forged receiver or a billet receiver just kind of breaking on its own. I mean, uh, metal you know metals are are good quality these days. So um, you know you're getting you know you're getting a, a good a good run no matter what you buy. Um, so some of these lowers, you know, forged lowers, lowers like uh, from Anderson Manufacturing are down in the in the 40, 40 to fifty dollar range. You know, I think uh, the spikes and Aero Precision are up around the, you know, the the hundred 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 and ten dollars, depending on where you buy them from. So the difference that you're getting um, on a lower is is basically machine time uh, because that's that's the expensive part. The raw aluminum. Um, is about the same price um, for everybody, you would assume. Uh, so it's what they do with the aluminum, the raw materials after the fact, um, that, that adds some price to it. Because, again, machine time is, uh, is where the expense is. So I would say, you know, uh, unless you're just looking for something really fancy, uh, don't buy a billet lower um, because you think it's it's more durable and it's stronger because it's not, you know, it's it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be, it's going to be the equivalent of your uh, of your forging um, for the most part. Like again, you know, if you want to get down to to some nitpicking scientific stuff, yeah, there, there's there's some differences, but um, you know, for practical purposes, for use in the real world, not enough difference for anybody to tell. So you know, for your basic your basic build, your sort of your sort of mill I don't want to say mill spec, but you know your your kind of generic AR15 blueprint receiver, uh, a forging a forge receiver is a good quality. Starting again, you know, go with spikes, go with arrow precision, um, uh, DPMS, Bushmaster, the usual usual suspects. Now some of the the third party manufacturers that I mentioned, um, it's hard to say where they source their aluminum from. So that's you, you, you may have an issue of quality there, and I say maybe, but, um, but definitely do your homework uh, before you do that because the whole build um, starts around the receiver, and, uh, and that's where you want your quality build. And you have to look at uh, a good quality barrel as well. But again, you know, build the barrel um, around the gun. You know, make it work for you. Make it do uh, what you want it to do. But uh, if you're thinking about building, man, there's a ton of YouTube videos out there while they're still up, YouTube. So while those videos are still available, uh, watch them. It's not that difficult, and I would encourage you guys to, to give it a shot because it, it's definitely a good learning experience for you. So uh, that's going to wrap it up for us today here, Bullet Points on Vinyl Draft Radio. You guys be armed, be smart, and be safe. We will see you next Tuesday here on Bullet Points, 3 p.m. Take care.